0: part six of the road past Kennesaw: the atlanta campaign of eighteen sixty four by richard manning mcmurray this LibriVox recording is in the public domain part six the month of august although he had inflicted heavy losses on the southerners sherman seems to have become convinced that he would not be able to capture atlanta by his customary tactics hood had constructed a line of trenches that ran from atlanta southward to east point protecting the railroads the confederate fortifications were too strong to be attacked and too long to be encircled sherman brought up a battery of siege guns and shelled the city The southern artillery in Atlanta replied, and for several weeks helpless citizens lived in their cellars and scurried about amid bursting shells as the artillery duels started fires and smashed buildings, killing soldiers and civilians indiscriminately. The federal commander also decided to try cavalry raids in the hope that his horsemen could reach the railroads below Atlanta and, by cutting them, force Hood to evacuate the city. Late in July two expeditions were launched, one under Brigadier General George Stoneman, was to swing to the east to McDonough, Lovejoy Station, and Macon, tearing up the railroad and destroying supplies as it went. These cavalrymen were then to strike southwest to Americas, where they hoped to free the thirty thousand northerners held in the prisoner of war camp at Andersonville. The other expedition under Brigadier General Edward M. McCook was to operate to the west and join Stoneman in attacking the Confederate lines of communication south of Atlanta. From the start, both raids were badly managed. Much of the blame must rest upon Stoneman, who chose to go directly to Macon rather than follow orders. The scattered Federals were faced by a well handled Confederate force led by Wheeler except for stoneman's column the northern horsemen were driven back to sherman's lines after destroying some confederate supplies stoneman reached the vicinity of macon where on july thirty one he was attacked by the southerners and captured along with five hundred of his men somehow during these busy weeks sherman found time to write a letter to miss emily hoffman of baltimore the fiancee of the dead mcpherson I owe you heartfelt sympathy, he wrote, adding, I yield to none of earth but yourself the right to excel me in lamentations for our dead hero. Better the bride of Macpherson dead than the wife of the richest merchant of Baltimore. Sherman described the fallen leader of the Army of the Tennessee, who had been a close friend as well as a trusted subordinate, as the personification of knighthood, and added that while life lasts, I will delight in the memory of that bright, particular star. On August 10, Hood, perhaps thinking that the defeat of Stoneman and McCook had weakened Sherman's cavalry, struck out at his opponent's line of supply. He sent cavalry commander Wheeler with four thousand men to destroy the railroad north of Marietta and to disrupt Sherman's communication with the North. Although Wheeler was able to make some temporary breaks in the line, he was unable to reduce substantially the flow of supplies to Sherman's armies. The Federal commander had built strong fortifications at the most strategic points on the railroad, and his efficient repair crews quickly rebuilt those parts of the track that Wheeler could reach and damage. Eventually, the Confederate cavalry drifted into Tennessee and did not rejoin Hood until the campaign was over. Many students of the war regard Wheeler's mission as a mistake because the absence of the cavalry deprived Hood of the best means of keeping posted on Sherman's activities and thus proved fatal to the army at Atlanta. Wheeler's departure led Sherman to send out a third cavalry expedition commanded by Brigadier General Judson Kilpatrick. The Northerners reached the railroads below Atlanta and, on August 1820, succeeded in tearing up sections of the track. On the 20th, they were driven away. Kilpatrick reported to Sherman that the railroad had been so thoroughly wrecked that it would take at least ten days to repair it. However, on the following day, the Federals saw trains bring supplies into the city from the south. Clearly, the northern cavalry was not strong enough to destroy Hood's lines of supply. New plans would have to be tried if the Unionists were to capture Atlanta. Meanwhile, a curious kind of optimism was developing in the southern ranks. Many Confederates did not see the hard battles of late July as defeats. Rather, they viewed them as successful efforts to halt the progress of flanking columns that had threatened the city's lines of supply. One officer wrote on August 4 about the battles of Atlanta and Ezra Church. General Hood watches his flanks closely and has twice whipped the flanking columns. When Sherman made no new efforts to flank the city, and when the northern cavalry raids were beaten off one after another, many men came to believe that Atlanta had been saved. In mid August, a Texan informed his home folk that affairs are brightening here. People and army seem more confident of success. At about the same time, a Mississippian wrote that the enemy seems checked in his flanking operations on our left, as he has made no progress in that direction for the last four or five days. On August 28, an Alabamian wrote his wife that it required hard fighting to check the enemy here after having pursued us so far. At the very end of August, there came exciting news for the Southerners. Sherman had fallen back. The Northerners were gone from in front of Atlanta. Many thought Wheeler's cavalry had cut off Sherman's supplies and that this had forced the Federal commander to lift the siege joyous confederates swarmed out of the city to romp over the abandoned northern trenches the scales have turned in favor of the south wrote captain thomas j key of arkansas and the abolitionists are moving to the rear johnsboro some southerners suspected in 1864 what we now know sherman had not retreated Rather, he had concluded that only his infantry could effectively break Hood's lines of supply and had resolved to move almost all of his forces to the southwest of the city. The movement began on August 25. One corps was sent back to the Chattahoochee bridgehead to guard the railroad that connected Sherman with the north. The remaining federal troops pulled out of their trenches and marched away to the west and south. By noon on the 28th, Howard's Army of the Tennessee had reached Fairburn, a small station on the Atlanta and West Point Railroad, 13 miles southwest of East Point. Later that afternoon, Thomas troops occupied Red Oak on the railroad five miles to the northeast. The northerners spent the rest of the 28th and the 29th destroying the tracks. The rails were torn up, heated, and twisted so that they were useless. Only one railroad, the Macon and Western, running southeast from East Point to Macon, now remained in Confederate hands. Sherman soon moved to cut it. By August 29, Hood had learned of the activities of the Federals at Fairburn. It was clear that the railroad to Macon would be Sherman's next objective, and the southern commander acted to defend that line. However, he badly misjudged the situation and thought that only two corps of Sherman's army were to the southwest. Late on August 30, Hood ordered Hardy to take two corps of the southern army, move against the raiding column, and drive it away. Both armies were soon closing in on Jonesboro, 14 miles below East Point on the Macon Railroad. By that evening, advance elements of the Union forces had crossed the Flint River and entrenched a position one mile west of Jonesboro. During the night, Hardy's Southerners moved into the town by rail. By morning, they were deploying in front of the Federal line. Hardy had his own corps, temporarily led by Major General Patrick R. Cleburne, and Lee's. It took until mid-afternoon to complete preparations for an attack. The Confederates advanced about 3 p.m., their assault falling mostly on an entrenched salient on the east bank of the Flint held by the Army of the Tennessee. The attack was fierce but uncoordinated and failed to drive back the Northerners. When the fighting ceased that night, the relative positions of the armies were unchanged. Meanwhile, Schofield's Army of the Ohio had managed to break the Macon Railroad near Ruffin Ready, a small station between Jonesboro and East Point. This movement led Hood to conclude that Sherman's main force was attacking Atlanta from the south. The Confederate commander, therefore, ordered Lee's corps to leave Hardy at Jonesboro and move toward Atlanta to help defend the city. Lee began this movement at 2 a.m. the next morning. At dawn on September 1, Sherman, with almost all of his troops, was south of Atlanta. The Federals were concentrating at Jonesboro, where they had encountered the bulk of the Southern Army on the preceding day, and where it seemed a decisive battle would be fought. The Confederates were widely separated. Hood, with one corps, was in Atlanta, Hardy, with his corps, was at Jonesboro, and Lee, with the remaining corps, was near East Point. At Jonesboro, Hardy had taken up a defensive position north and west of the town. During the afternoon, he was attacked by the overwhelming force of northerners concentrated there. Although suffering many casualties, especially in prisoners, Hardy's corps fought well and held its position until night offered a chance to fall back to Lovejoy Station seven miles to the south. By this time, Hood had realized what was happening and knew that Atlanta could not be held any longer. During the night of September 1-2, he evacuated the city. Supplies that could not be carried away were burned. Hood's forces moved far to the east of the city to pass around Jonesboro and join Hardy at Lovejoy Station. On September two, Mayor James M. Calhoun surrendered Atlanta to a party of federal soldiers. On the following day, Sherman sent a telegram to the authorities in Washington announcing that Atlanta is ours and fairly won. He added that he would not pursue the Confederates, who were then fortified at Lovejoy Station, but would return to Atlanta so that his men could enjoy a brief respite from fighting. Since May 5, he wrote, we have been in one constant battle or skirmish and need rest. A few days later, another Federal wrote from his camp near Atlanta, Here we will rest until further orders. The campaign that commenced May 2nd is now over and we will rest here to recruit and prepare for a new campaign. Some writers have been critical of Sherman's decision not to press after Hood's army. They maintain that the enemy force, and not the city of Atlanta, was the true objective of the Unionists. It may have been that Sherman's action was determined by the question of supplies, or it may have been that his men were too exhausted for immediate operations south of the city. At any rate, the capture of Atlanta delighted and heartened northerners. News of Sherman's victory was greeted with ringing bells and cannon fire all over the north. Epilogue Sherman soon turned Atlanta into an armed camp. Houses were torn down and the lumber used for fortifications or soldiers' huts. Civilians could not be fed by the army, and were ordered out of the city with the choice of going north or south. In mid-September a truce was declared, and the citizens who chose to remain in the Confederacy were transported by the northerners to Rough and Ready, where they were handed over to Hood's men who conveyed them further south. After completion of this unpleasant task, Hood determined to reverse Sherman's strategy and to move with his whole army around Atlanta to draw Sherman after him into Alabama or Tennessee. In late September, the Confederates crossed the Chattahoochee and marched northward over many of the summer's battlefields. Sherman left a strong garrison in Atlanta and followed Hood northward for several weeks. Unable to bring his opponent to bay, Sherman detached a strong force to deal with the Confederates and returned to Atlanta. Hood's army was virtually destroyed in several battles fought in Tennessee in November and December. Sherman, meanwhile, reorganized his armies and, on November 15th burned Atlanta and marched out of the city on his way to the sea. The final importance of the Atlanta campaign may lie more in its psychological impact than in any military results. Essentially, in early September, the Confederate military forces were in the same position relative to the northern armies that they had held early in the spring. Psychologically, however, there had been a great shift. The news that Atlanta had fallen meant that the average northerner had at last a tangible military victory that made it possible for him to see the end of the war in the future. There would be more months of marching, fighting, and dying, but Sherman's capture of Atlanta convinced many that the Confederacy was doomed. Sherman in Atlanta on september three, eighteen sixty-four, 1864 president abraham lincoln telegraphed the commanding officer of the federal military division of the mississippi the national thanks are rendered to major general w t sherman and the officers and soldiers of his command before atlanta for the distinguished ability and perseverance displayed in the campaign in georgia which under divine favor has resulted in the capture of atlanta the marches battles sieges and other military operations that have signalized the campaign must render it famous in the annals of war and have entitled those who have participated therein to the applause and thanks of the nation the union soldiers had in sherman's words completed the grand task which has been assigned us by our government atlanta chief rail hub of the confederacy and one of the south's principal distributing industrial commercial and cultural centers was in federal hands at last it was a choice prize the city was founded in eighteen thirty seven as terminus so named because a rail line ended there it was incorporated as marthasville in eighteen forty five two years later it was renamed atlanta only a few dozen people lived there in the eighteen forties but by eighteen sixty one when the civil war began some ten thousand people called it home by eighteen sixty four when sherman's army started south from chattanooga atlanta's population was double that number The city boasted factories, foundries, stores, arsenals, government offices, and hospitals, which, as the war progressed and drew closer, were hard-pressed to handle the mounting number of casualties needing treatment. So strategic was Atlanta that Confederate President Jefferson Davis proclaimed that its fall would open the way for the Federal armies to the Gulf on one hand and to Charleston on the other, and close up those granaries from which General Robert E. Lee's armies were supplied. It would give them control of our network of railroads and thus paralyze our efforts. Now, with federal soldiers in Atlanta, Davis's fears would be realized. Sherman's troops occupied Atlanta for more than two months. End of Part 6 End of The Road Past Kennesaw, The Atlanta Campaign of 1864 by Richard Manning McMurray